The Lost and the Damned, Part 1. The Sol System has fallen. The void between Pluto and Terra, now littered with the shattered defences, ships and hopes of the beleaguered loyalists. Horus has bludgeoned his way to the heart of the Imperium, as many knew he would. For he is the War Master, blessed by the Dark Gods to usher in a new age of mankind. The Aegist, an advanced void shield, and a remaining orbital plate are all that protect the Imperial Palace, as Horus unleashes his wrath in the form of an orbital bombardment upon Terra. It is seemingly impregnable, but for a small weakness identified by the War Master's greatest mind, Perturabo. Located just beyond the Helios Gate, there is a chink in the Loyalist armour. On the ground, across Terra, every able-bodied man and woman are pressed into Imperial Army service to aid in the defence of their homeworld against the inevitable ground war that will follow. Among these is a conscript named Katsuhiro, a mere human in a war of demigods. Given a lasgun and little training, he and his fellow conscripts are assigned to the defence of Bastion 16. But not all of his comrades in arms are as they seem. The Emperor has secluded himself in the Imperial Dungeon, seated upon the Golden Throne, warding the palace against the demonic horde released upon the webway by Magnus's folly and unable to be stopped by the Emperor's talons. But the Loyalist forces are not without leadership. Rogel Dorn, Praetorian of Terra, helms the defence. Supported by his brothers Sanguinius and Jagatai, along with Constantine Valdor and Malkador, there is little that he cannot meet with shield and flame. The Sigilite also reveals the return of a secret ally, long thought lost or dead, Vulcan. But his role in the siege remains largely unknown at this time, for he is to remain sequestered with the Emperor far below. Above the throne wall, within the shifting walls of the vengeful spirit, there is much deliberation. Angron yearns for an assault that will cover Terra in blood and death. Fulgrim seeks only new delights through antagonising his brothers or creative slaughter. Magnus speaks of patience and power, knowing that the Emperor is weakening, but that his psychic shield still prevents those of demonic origin, including the transcended Primarchs, from entering the palace. But a large enough ritual enacted upon the soil of terror, spilling the blood of countless lives, may be the impetus needed to bring it down. Perturabo, satisfied with his logic alone, merely points out the target of their first assault, the weakened Bastion 16. Through it all, Abaddon seethes. Disgusted at the lack of action from Horus, the dark forces that bend the War Master's ear and fog his mind, and the bickering Primarchs, he feels their momentum waning. But the will of Horus is undeniable. The bombardment of the planet will continue, as will the first landings of the traitor horde. From the walls of the palace, in the command centre above the Helios Gate, the Blood Angel's first captain, Ralderon, and the Imperial Fist, Maximus Thane, watch as thousands of assault craft crash through Terra's atmosphere and disgorge millions of the lost and the damned upon the already devastated landscape. 
They are the dispossessed of the galaxy. Mutants, beastmen, and chaos cultists, driven into a frenzy by near-religious fervour and toxins. Beside them are formal Imperial Army regiments, who have forsaken their vows of loyalty and given themselves over to the ruinous powers and the fallen Primarchs. They throw themselves forward, the whips of their word-bearer overseers cutting into their backs, screaming into the Loyalist fortifications. In the darkening skies overhead, traitorous void fighters engage the palace defences, testing both shields and the metal of the Imperial pilots. Across terror, devastation reigns. Entire populations are put to the sword, either through atomizing bombardment or by the murderous hands of the devoted forces of chaos. The first stage of a dark rite that could shatter the remaining hope of mankind. The barbarians are at the gate. Hello, citizens of the Imperium, and welcome back to another episode of Horus Hour Siege Season. I am your host, Sing, with me as always, my venerable sigilite, Varela. Hello there. Thank you as always to Nick for an outstanding introduction, um, and I hope that's brought a little bit of gravitas to our small little show. Today, Varela, we are covering the first half of The Lost and the Damned. It's been a minute since we did a proper Siege episode. We, we did Sons of the Selenar recently. They have taken the solar system. They have taken the moon. Abaddon stole the moon. And now we are here, and they are here, to take terror. How are you finding this book so far? Hey, in the words of um, of someone else that I was speaking to just a couple of minutes ago, it's a really good book, man. <laughs> I love this book. You know? I love, this, I love book. this book. I love this book. That's good. It's a great book. <laughs> That's, we've come a long way, haven't we, from that very first little introduction thing we did. We've really fallen in love with the Horus Heresy, haven't we, Varela? Yeah. So I... <laughs> I, sh I should say, I should go back to, it's pretty good, and it's I, honestly, because uh, it, it, br it brings good. it back down a notch, you know? That's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, just humble me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could take it or leave it. Um, okay, on the real, tell me about Lost and the Damned. Emotions, trains of thought. Well, so epiphanies? far... No epiphanies, uh, other than, you know... Um, Life is fickle on Earth right now. On on Terra, sorry. Um, well, true for both, my friend. True for both. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, um, seeing people get conscripted and stuff, pretty sad. Seeing people, you know, look up at the sky and be like, I can't even see the stars. It's just a bunch of ships, you know, pretty sad. Right now, it's just... That's, a, that's just an average city experience now, bro. <laughs> if you went outside right now, you would oh, be able no. to see any stars. It's just the ISS. <laughs> it's just the lone ISS. To be fair, though, I am thing. in the country right now. I am not in the city. I am not in the cupboard, boys. I, I have freed myself from the cupboard. We are rapidly approaching Varela's location to put him back <laughs> in the cupboard. <laughs> I have ran away from my handlers, and I, I am now free and at large. That's what he thinks. Right. Oh, damn. <laughs> um, yep, so this book, 
is the story of the initial traitor landings. And to be honest, they're teasing us a little bit, aren't they? Because we're not really even we're we're talking a lot now about what's happening behind and on the walls, but the traitors aren't at the walls yet. This is the story really of what happens outside the walls, that opening effort to try and slow the traitors simply by having bodies, isn't it? Yeah, just throwing bodies at the problem. You know, it worked. It worked sometimes in history. Why not here as well, you know? Once again, going to reference what I've been saying for a couple of episodes now. The beginnings of 40K. You know? Yeah, yeah. This is this is the... Uh, I don't know, actually. An Imperial Guard, it depends really, doesn't it? Some of them, I'm sure, are conscripted. Some are professionals. But, I mean, you only need to look at the the Imperial Army conscripts on the front cover of The Lost and the Dam to see that we're on the way now, right? Yeah, they, they all look, you know, like the standard Cadian um, infantrymen, which, you know, let's, let's be real. Cadians are like professional, but they are also conscripted because they were born on the Fortress world. What else are they going to do? <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, true. yeah, you do see a lot of the conscription from 40k and like the bad equipment and just you know kind of you see that machine gun over there yeah i do sir well run at it <laughs> kind of mentality mm. you know uh, on both sides really because you, you got the beastmen and stuff running at guns and then yeah. getting into melee yeah it's really going from the classic style of warfare where there's like proper sieges there's like uh, breakthroughs and stuff to a human wave 40k-esque approach so yeah there's definitely that switch uh right now i think yeah so i think this is something that's covered in one of the many short stories we haven't read is where dawn it's sort of this dawn has to decide how, whether to conscript or not he's actually very reluctant prior to the siege to actually conscript troops in preparation and he thinks they're going to be more of a burden than a help but i think if he hadn't this whole thing would have been over a lot sooner and we're jumping straight into it then um the opening part of this book focuses very intensely on um on conscription for the most part i mean right at the start uh we have dawn and the oh we have the uh is it quite no it's not quite the exposition chapter yet that's coming <laughs> the great exposition dump of the siege of terror um that happens in this book um but we have some returning characters if you remember two operatives do you remember where they're from i, I don't i don't um i do remember seeing them somewhere like when i read it it might be because i've read it twice now <laughs> this part of the book but i remember at least the second passing I, I looked at it and i was like wait i recognize these names um yeah but i don't remember where they're from no so they're in a book where rogel dawn becomes the only loyalist primark to get a traitor primark kill oh wait what book is that oh no Praetorian of dawn Praetorian of dawn that's the one where, where my boy arkham is you know, Archimus the first kicks you, the uh, bucket, as you like to clearly remind everyone. Actually, Archimus the second, get it right. Oh, you like Archimus the second? I thought you said you didn't like Archimus the second. No, because no, okay. So Archimus the first dies as a neophyte, 
Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't hate Arkham as a third, but he's very much just an Imperial you first. You know that um, they just... I'm not going to say stole, but did you ever read the Marnie's Calgar comics? Uh Oh, uh, like the, uh, the one where he rips the head off. Um... Oh, yeah. I mean, people didn't like that. Yeah, I, um, I have origins. read that. Yeah. Did you ever read his origins? I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read that comic. But I have read that. Yeah, and they I did can... kind of steal that idea. I don't. I don't know which one came first, but it is kind of the same idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh no, this the Praetorian of Dawn definitely came first. Um, just the poster boys of forty k ripping off the poster boys of thirty k. I think to be fair, <laughs> uh, I can't really complain. Um, so. Yeah, and we're also so we're introduced to two operatives who don't really have any orders. Their job is simply to just try and find something to do, right? Get in amongst it. Yeah, just provoke mayhem. Yeah, which I, I guess is what Dorn had reservations about because that, that I do you think they got on a train? Because it's not actually explicit. Well, you don't have to think because you've read the whole book, right? But it's not actually explicit in the chapter whether they got like on a train and infiltrated the conscripts or whether they're just like gonna shoot people. <laughs> um. So no, so it says it says that they go to. They snuck down the mountain. The muster point was simmering with tension. So they do. They go. They sneak into a muster point. I assume uh, Katsuhiro's muster point. Oh. Um, oh, wait. That's, so that's why they're there. Because he runs into them very early on. Wait. So wait. Hold up. That is not... I, I, I'm, having, I'm having an epiphany right now. So you're saying that Doromek... Is the dude and the like cold woman is well the woman that I don't um, remember the names of. I'm not too sure. I genuinely can't remember. Damn, <laughs> we're very qualified to do this podcast, bro. <laughs> I might be deflecting from an accidental spoiler. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, don't take a genius. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of just. You know, the, the cogs started turning after you said that. I'm surprised that. that you didn't get it the second time you read through this half of a book. Because I was just distracted <laughs> with, like, getting the environment and, like, details They really alpha you know? you, buddy. Yeah, they, they did. They got they me good, They are foolproof. Bro. They've done they got twice. Me good. So, yeah, so Katsuhiro. Katsuhiro um, is just, he's just trying his best, isn't he, in this first half of the book. Um... And to speak to sort of his whole his whole journey in sort of the first half, he just sort of gets he just becomes over it very quickly. Yeah, I feel like um, because I think what we should really be talking about is the what what is done so well in this book is just it's just it's just very cost it's just very anxious. It just makes me feel very anxious feeling about the conscript. You know whether whether it's sort of that early madness of Katsuhiro coming off and just being bustled into these crowds of people. If you've ever seen the film Enemy at the Gates, um, it's giving off very similar vibes, sort of the conscripts arriving at Stalingrad. Um, a very good film, brother, if you haven't watched it. I, I have, As usual, I have to say, I have not watched it. <laughs> That's okay. It was, I forget, it's it quite, it quite a stacked British cast, so it might just, it might be mainly British-American viewing, so I don't blame you, but it's definitely worth a watch. Um, 
and I feel like it's probably was probably a bit of an inspiration here. Um, so yeah, from the, from the conscripts arriving at the muster points to um, being sent out to the front lines, and basically the, the Imperial Army is now at this point where anyone who was a professional is now an officer, basically, and they maybe have one officer to a hundred people, um, which is way off kilt from the Imper- for the Imperial Army, and it just the description of not the natural but almost the passive effects of this war are having on them right yeah um Where they had to, to like they had yeah. to like sleep uh, like while still standing because there was no space for anything and they're no. they're all just like kind of already they're pretty much already depleted by the time they get given guns yeah and I think I think it's even said in this first half of the book that like Katsuhiro sort of, or it might be a little bit later, but Katsuhiro realizes that from everything they've been exposed to, they're already dead. You know, they're already yeah. their lifespans are all already probably at least cut in half, if not down to a few years. Um, he's he's got I think it's described as he's like his teeth are loose in his mouth and. Um, oh, I don't think we've gotten to that part because I uh, did not see that. What, what okay. we do get is like Doromek saying, telling Katsuhiro, I think it's Doromek at least, that the uh, snow that they're experiencing isn't actually snow; it's like radioactive fallout. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> unfortunately, we get introduced to the Aegis in this book, which becomes a very important um, plot device going forward. This sort of um, old technology. Void, void shielding that the Mechanicum run over the Imperial Palace to block incoming munitions. In fact, we have a sort of symbolic shot, don't we? Um, yeah. That all the Primarchs watch come in. A symbolic, the first shot of the Siege of Terror. They try and hit the Emperor in the forehead. Um, they know, obviously, it's not going to work and the Aegis bounces off the Aegis. But the rest of Terror doesn't have the Aegis, does it? Yeah, there's just stuff getting blown up. It's and just fair, that nuclear kinda... war. That kind of makes me wonder why Dorn was so reluctant to conscript people, because the people outside the walls were already dead. Might as well slap a gun in their hands. Mm. You well, know, um, I think ultimately what 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 it means, and what we might see the effects of in later books, is it's more people to look after in the walls. It's more people taking away at your rations and your supplies. Um, and he's basically, I imagine his decision-making was going to be is the average feat of a conscripted soldier going to trade off the resource drain that they're going to have on my supplies? I think that would basically be how he's looking at it, right? Like, is the average conscript going to be able to basically... I mean, we talk about it a lot in the tabletop. is sort of like justify the points cost. So in yeah. Heresy Tabletop, you know almost everything on the table. Once you've played a full game, almost everything on the table is is destroyed. The question is, will it earn back its points? If I buy Squad Varela for 200 points, are they going to go and kill 200? Uh, can I make sure that they go and kill 200 points of stuff? Well, of course they, of course they will. <laughs> yeah. I was, just speaking quickly, we played at Warhammer World recently, and they did actually have a pretty good innings. Um I do use them purely as bait now. I'll be honest. Damn. I put I put it onto the flank I cared about onto the flank I cared about least. 
because one of our mods uh, just wants not mods. So yeah, he is a mod actually. I think yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He is. Um, uh, just goes for him. He's just purely to take the picture afterwards. And then we were playing with Leaky Cheese, and Leaky Cheese thought that sounded really funny, so he joined in as well. So your squad faced down um, a, uh, a four, a three dreadnoughts. Um, one of which being the super duper word bearers possessed dreadnought. And oh lord, I think you basically took uh, you took um, so I think in in my shooting phase, I took one of the dreadnoughts down to one wound, and then basically because in heresy you have reactions in the opposing player's phase, you can sort of react. So I used my shooting reaction while Leaky Cheese's crazy demon dreadnought was charging. And you took about three wounds off of that. Um, if 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 the other dreadnought with one wound had charged, you'd have killed it. Um, Honestly, so, I think that's a justification of points <laughs> right there. Yeah, yeah. That demon, that demon dreadnought was no joke, though, man. It was on at half wounds, and then proceeded to go toe blow for blow with my Leviathan dreadnought for the rest of the game, and then killed it in the final turn. Killed my Leviathan in the final turn of the game. Damn. On on one wounds, yeah, it was it was no joke. But to bring this full circle, Squad Varela cost me about two hundred points. In an ideal world, I'm going to try and get him onto. If I'm playing not against our mods, I will try and get um onto the flank of a land raider or something. Can you pop if you pop a land raider, which a squad of ten melter gun guys at close range will do very easily? You've earned your points back, and that's probably how Dawn's thinking because Dawn. He's not one for subtlety and he's not one for putting emotion into his calculations, is he? Um, is the average conscript going to kill more than they're going to cost to feed clove an arm? I assume that's probably the train of thought and he's decided probably. To be fair though, the fact that he does a late conscription also contributes to this because it essentially, if we go by you know the point cost you, uh, argument here, like it costs less points to just do it at the end. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like you, you won't have to feed them for as long. You don't have to train them, like give them any training at all. So you can focus on your actually well-supplied units instead. And you can just give them the bare minimum in terms of clothing and uh, barracks and stuff. So it ends up being, you know, lowering the cost <laughs> of each unit. And what I will say to that is, Every I think almost every book near enough in in this series does very well at showing the continued effect of the siege on everyone inside the palace, including all the soldiers. And maybe it probably is not going to stay as idealistic as it is now from a supply point of view. Yeah, it's it's going to get a lot worse. Um, anyway. Kazuo Hero is chucked out on the front lines. Uh, and as you say, he made some friends. He's made uh, one friend who's usually quite confident. Um, and then Doromek. And there was also the mention of a woman, isn't there? Yeah. Um, so that's quite good. I do like um, how... What does he see? He um 
he he sees an image, doesn't it? Of and he thinks it's the emperor. Uh, oh, he, he. I don't think he thinks it's the emperor. He like imagines it as if it's the emperor. Like he goes like, "Oh, what if that was like a sign that the emperor is watching all, over us all or something?" Wasn't it? I think he does it for a moment think the emperor's there. I think it's almost like stained glass windows. Um, yeah. Um, oh, and it was like it was so lifelike that he thinks it's the actual emperor, isn't it? Yeah, and then he gets snapped out of it. Um, so yes, he's literally his so enemy at the gates because he's literally just given a little bag that's just put over your head, basically. Um, that's got um, what's it called? Recaf. Got your caffeine fix. Yeah, and then salt and glucosium energy blends. Sounds tasty. Honestly, no water though. <laughs> no water. <laughs> but honestly, to complete your your whole enemy at the gates thing, you just gotta replace the stained uh, glass with an image of Stalin instead. <laughs> it's <Stalin> yeah, bro. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I don't think that'd be too far off, given what given what the Imperium are all about. Yeah. Anyway, um, then we have. Something I don't I just don't know if it was really neat. the exposition subchapter. Did you see it as an exposition subchapter or did you find it useful? No, it was it was pretty. I mean, it was interesting, but it was definitely just an exposition subchapter. It's just like Malkador, Malkador. Um, <laughs> I want to use the term mansplaining because I think that's funny. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's say psychersplaining <laughs> to Dorn. Yeah. <laughs> like, Dorn is just like, yo, but like, why, why didn't you tell me about this? And Dorn, um, I mean, Malkador is like, yeah, you wouldn't understand it, bro. You wouldn't get it. You mm. know? You're not a psyker. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's right, because Dorn is just like, Dorn's like, okay, I think it's not looking great, but I have things under control. And Malkador's like, bro, we'll just to let you know, the basement's on fire and full of demons. <laughs> now seems like control? the appropriate time to tell you this. And Dawn is like, oh my god, seriously. Uh, <laughs> why? Why? You know, have you not told Because like, you just like, you remember, I don't know if you remember back in Master of Mankind, like, they won't even let Dawn finish the sentence when he says, I could send Imperial Fists to go and help with it. They're just like, no, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> shut up. Stop Dorn asking just... questions. Thorne just asks Malkador, like, oh, what's the contingency plan in case the demons, you know, burst out? Oh, yeah, we have a big tall guy with a warhammer. <laughs> oh, my God, he said the line. He said the oh, line, guys. Oh, my God, did we find the warhammer 40k? Oh, Is that 40K. it? I have a little thing that I like to play with, uh, basically with no one. It's just me, myself, and I in this. Um, have you ever seen those, the a million dollars butt? What? Videos? So it's like you get a million dollars... Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah! You can't. So, a million. Would you take this for Verla? A million dollars, but any time the title of a film or a book is said in said film or book, you have to stop reading slash watching immediately. Oh no! Oh, that is awful. So, so like, if I wanted to watch something like Dune and they just reference a random Dune, it's it's over. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I played that recently, actually. I watched Dune, and uh, about 25 minutes in, the Baron 
of the Harkins just goes, my Dune. And then, oh, oh film's over. Oh, no. I might even say it earlier. It might even be in the prologue, you know. Zendaya might say it in the opening prologue. Why do you do this to yourself? I'm just saying it just it's just a million dollars, but I, I wouldn't I would not. I would not take that million dollars, honestly. Yeah, you can do Avatar. They talk about Avatars get exposition within like the first twenty yeah. minutes. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I couldn't uh, do enemy either at the gates. I don't think the words are ever said that the enemy are at the gates. They have to be. They no, have to no, be. No, 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 no. I don't think it is. I think it's very subtle. So, um, I think you could watch that entire film. You'd be fine. That's the that's the risk yeah. you got to take, isn't it? You get a million dollars. Just the off chance that, guys, let us know on Twitter and in the. Uh, I'm gonna put it as a. I'm gonna put it as a Q and A on this episode. Million dollars, but. <laughs> so yeah, unfortunately, Varela said the Warhammer word. So goodbye, everyone. Yeah, it's over. No, we'll um, we'll catch you on the next one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there it. I do remember this being a little bit of a chore to get through. It was like just a recap of the entire Horus Heresy, which, to be fair, you could then probably say to someone, "Do I need to read all the Horus Heresy?" I'd be like, "Well, you should really read these select books that we have covered on the podcast, and then listen to our episodes about them." Yeah, but yeah, maybe maybe you'd stand a chance coming into the siege thanks to this. I don't know though. I just feel like you'd be too all over the place. Um, I think there's too much to put in and explain. It's fifty something books, so therefore it, I don't really see the point because it's literally just like sentence after sentence. Like, hmm, and what about Korax? Hmm, and what about the lion? And you I, know, I... it's oh, the lion's over here. Korax <laughs> is over here. I do think, though, that you could probably just hop into the siege as, as its own thing. Like, you'd be very confused, but you'd still enjoy it, in my oh, yeah, honest just, opinion. If you just rode the wave, you know? I guess. Yeah, if, if you just went like, okay, I don't know about that, I guess I don't care. <laughs> and you just keep going. You know, it's still enjoyable. Well, at least up to the point I am, which is two and a half books in. Yeah. Okay, speak, okay, and in this chapter, rather, there's a challenge is going to be set for you. Oh, no. Yeah, the people at home already know about this one. So, fun fact, we never did the Vulcan trilogy, did we? We did not. So, in the end of the Vulcan trilogy, he obviously ends up at Terra, yep. where he is met by Malkador and Rogaldorn. Oh, okay, so you've already told me about this. Yeah, Yet, there's a... Rogaldorn seems completely oblivious. What, said Dawn, the colour drained from his face. That was months ago, said Sanguinius. And you tell us now? What, said Dawn again. He's just pretending, guys. <laughs> so, this, they, an author will attempt to retcon this in writing later in the siege. And I hope you spot it when it comes. I have to spot it. Okay, okay. I mean... Yeah. Um, Eager to show he knew at least something, Dawn spoke first. His desire to reclaim some of his honour, if only in his own eyes, made the Khan grin more deeply. God, I love that guy. I don't know who that guy is, but that guy seems awesome. <laughs> um, I just like they. It's just because they. It's just because they went so heavily into Dawn not knowing about Vulcan and like trying to reclaim his honour about the fact he didn't know 
Um, so, yeah. Oh, sorry, that was in reference. That part about Dawn not knowing was in reference to the Imperial Dungeon. Yeah. Which, to be fair, Dawn would have lo- known loads about if he wasn't just told to shut up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if they actually let him do something. Um, so, after the great exposition dump, we return to the baddies and uh, perhaps a new contender for Rat Supreme. I'll be honest. In in the absence of Erebus, Zadu Lyak drives me up the wall. Yeah. He, he was uh, a good in a good way. In a good Erebus. way. He's, he's doing a good job at what he's set out to do. I don't think he's badly written, but he is just... But I hate him. <laughs> yeah, and he's, he hangs on to Abaddon like a rash, doesn't he? He, uh, he won't leave Abaddon alone. Abaddon's just trying to, like, do his job, and Zardu Lyak is just harassing him, essentially. <laughs> so, I would argue this we're starting to see in this book... Abaddon, perhaps, having having some doubts. Yeah, do you, he, do you think? Do you think? Yeah, agree? yeah. He seems like um, he, he thinks it's not even doubts at, at this point. I think he's going back to the cultures Abaddon, where he's like, "I will bow to no one." He's just like slowly going back, you know, like. He sees horrors looking more and more decayed, essentially, because, you know, that's what corruption does. And he goes like, well, I killed my my literal dad because he was like, oh, I'm your king, kill your friends. Like, now now horrors is making me hang out with this guy that I hate. And he's looking weak as shit. And we're back. Sorry, Brella, you were saying about how Abaddon uh, might not be agreeing with this whole plan. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, it, I think I was talking about Zardu Lyak and how, you know, Abaddon really doesn't like him, and he's starting to dislike the plan, and just, you know, he does have doubts, as you were saying, uh, just not in that classical, oh, uh, I don't know if we're going to succeed, it's like, I guess it is that as well. Right, I kind of lost my train of thought here a little bit. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can chime in if you like and just say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think obviously, I think you're right to a certain extent. Extent we know Abaddon is going to um take the lead somewhat going forward in in forty k, and we. We, that needs to happen, and I think again, the siege of terror is may well be used to sort of set Abaddon up on that journey. I'm not going to comment about the later books necessarily, but I would certainly say he he looks like perhaps he's not agreeing, especially with the whole warp thing. I would say, yeah, he's definitely not on board. And I think I purely think that's because Zardu Lyak is driving him nutty. <laughs> <laughs> if Zardu Lyak weren't there, I don't think Abaddon would have these issues. Uh, yeah, because I, I guess he wouldn't see... Uh, he's got the whole Erebus was corrupting Boss's ear, you know? He was mm. also always, you know, uh, whispering in Horus's ear. And he's like, Boss, you shouldn't do that. That that guy ain't trustworthy. And now he's got Zardu Lyak doing the exact same thing in the exact same way. And Horus still has, you know, apprehensions about that whole priest thing. Uh, I guess to some extent he believes in the imperial truth still. He's like, 
yeah, okay, there's warp entities, but they're essentially just, you know, interdimensional aliens instead. Uh, yeah. And we shouldn't really bow down to Xenos and stuff. Uh, and I guess that makes him, you know, uh, eventually come to kind of resent Horus, I guess. Yeah, he's not there yet, but I'm assuming that's where it's going, right? Yeah. Um, and then it's very ironic because in 40k, he does the exact same thing <laughs> as Horus does. So, you know, um, they don't call him Failbadon for nothing. Uh, so I, gu I guess we have that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we we did, uh, uh, what I'll just touch on as we skipped over a little bit is we have a scene of Sanguinius flying over the Imperial Palace. Um, and there's a little bit, it's a little bit of a confrontation between him and Rogel Dawn, isn't it? Um, Rogel is, I mean, Rogel's very concerned now. I would say Dawn is very concerned of being alone in all of this. I'm going to go out and say it like that. I think he, I think first off, he does like to be in control of situations and understand them. Um, so when his brothers sort of act against the grain, he sort of reacts a little bit poorly. But I, I think he's a bit nervous now at this point. He's worried Sanguinius flying about on his own whilst a huge nuclear arsenal is being just dropped on him the other side of the Aegis. Um, I think he's, I think he's concerned that he's going to lose people. What do you think? Yeah, Cut. no. Here we go. It's definitely, it's definitely that. He doesn't know that. If if a the ages were to fail and land strikes or bombs or whatever were to fall, Sanguinis would literally just fly away because he can see them coming before it happens. Very true. Uh, so yeah, he's like. Not, I, I don't know whether it's necessarily because he doesn't want to be alone. It's because he realizes that Sanguinius is a, you know, very good asset just to have in general. And since R Rogel Dorn is very pragmatic, he might just be like, yeah, if I lose this guy, I'll have an entire legion with no proper command, you know, mm. uh, that might refuse to follow my orders or that of the Khan or Malkador or whoever it is that isn't the Emperor or Sanguinius trying to boss them around. And then he just has a, like a massive rogue element within his own walls. Um, and I, I guess that worries him, you know, not necessarily, I'm not saying that he doesn't like his brother, but you know, <laughs> it, it is rogue torn. <laughs> so it might be more in that kind of way. Uh, and it's again, cause he's misinformed about the warp uh, as, as per usual. Um, and I mean, it's not like Malkador or Sanguinius would tell him about premonition and stuff, because he'd be like, yeah, that's bonkers. You guys are lying. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And yeah, Rogel Dawn is the pragmatic one, but he's still going to make Sanguinius go and deal with the overly pragmatic Mechanicum. True. Um, which we can get into in a, uh. A little bit. Oh, we didn't even talk about the uh, Horace and his little crew going down to meet the Emperor. Oh, it's uh, an interesting vision. And so the warp, Horace is descending it? to Terra, surrounded by what he thought were four squad mates and veterans, but they are in fact the gods of chaos. Oh yeah, it's heavily implied. Well, they don't say it's them. But it's implied, right? Yes. 
Um, yeah, one it's of them, them like, guys. One of them takes his. What's it say? One of them like takes his hand and is saying, "My lord, they love you. They love you." One of them is really angry. <laughs> um, one of them stinks. <laughs> yeah, one of them is sort of sort of pustulant in in their appearance. Um, yeah, and he's sort of we're seeing Horus in these fever dreams that he now seems to be drifting into, right? Yeah. Like, visions of the past. Like, I think it is implied that he's actually there, like, in the past. Because mm. it says, like, oh, yeah, some beings are, like, timeless and stuff. So it's not, like, a memory. He's actually there. Um, and the Emperor realizes. Uh, but, like, his past self doesn't, nor does anyone else around him. It's an interesting scene, for sure. It's, like, um, you know, something I wasn't expecting, I guess, because so far we've had the those, like, visions of the the Emperor looking weak and stuff in the middle of a forest and just a bunch of wolves mm. coming around. And then all out of nowhere, we just get the scene of um, Horus first meeting the Emperor on Terra. Uh, and I was like, oh, maybe, maybe he is having a fever dream, right? Maybe this is the actual event um and then it just wasn't because they just start speaking to each other <laughs> in the middle of like a no ceremony <laughs> mm. <laughs> and it's just kind of weird bro i, I <laughs> it's a great that scene don't a, get me wrong but it's just strange summed up though isn't it kinda yeah weird. pretty much kind of weird. weird not gonna lie i don't get it but like cool if you do bro <laughs> um and then Going forward from Lyak and Abaddon's conversation, we have the crazy crew, <laughs> the uh, the sort of council above Terra of the traitors, Angron just going absolutely mental, uh, Fulgrim purely just trying to rile Angron up the entire time, just for a quick, <laughs> just for a laugh. Um, Pertrabo, who just is desperately clawing for attention and um, acknowledgement and Cowboy Howl is just kind of vibing right? Yeah, he's just there <laughs> uh, you know I just, all I have to say about the scene is that Fulgrim rallying up Angron is funnier than it has any right to be that's about it really <laughs> the rest of the scene is just them like Fighting is this each the other. Scene where they mute him, or was that in a previous book, or is that yet to come? Uh, I think that might be yet to come. I don't think they mute him. Something to look forward to. Um, but yes. Uh, the it's quite is it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you sort of have all these different factors. Angron just wants to get down on the planet, but if he does, he will literally get disintegrated because of the Emperor's power. Um, Magnus is there. Magnus says, I have a plan to limit That's his power. That's pretty usual. Um, and basically is to make a, an octet around the palace and then kill loads of people. Um, and that will summon the Neverborn eventually, but it will take time. Which means Angron can't go down first. And Horus has actually promised Mortarion to go first. I don't know when he made that promise. I don't know if we saw that. Uh, I think we did. 
and I, I think it's just for not much of a reason. Um, it's probably probably maybe part of a deal to get him on side. No, 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 because like he was already on side, and then Horus. I, I guess it's to keep him on side. Mm. Uh, let me check actually. I mean, let let, let a production check, right? Mm. <laughs> Our extensive production team behind the yeah, behind yeah, yeah, yeah. camera that doesn't exist either. Of course, they exist. It's me. Oh, <laughs> oh I can't see it. That's okay, brother. We'll um. But yes, that is what's going to happen. Mortarion is going to land first. And we are going to see the Death Guard take to the field later in the book that I've kept Varela, kept Varela away from for now. But now, Varela, we got to talk about the Mechanicum. It's Mechanicum time. Woo! Yeah, baby! I, I haven't got any party poppers or anything. But um, <laughs> yes, Sanguinius goes to meet with Fabricated General K who is, um, let's face it, is only here because of the goat, Sigismund, saving him from Mars. Um, but yeah, I, I like how there's a, a sort of Blood Angels um, captain or sergeant who's just getting absolutely uh, blanked by the bodyguards Damn. of the Mechanicum. I don't remember this. Wait. Hello? Can you recap it real quick? Yeah. Um, is a blood angel called Galenius. Do you remember I do, I do remember that name. Wait. Um... And it's, uh, there's like all the, they're called Skitari Mandrag Mandragora. Mandragora, yeah. I remember that. I don't remember the scene <laughs> at all. <laughs> I, I remember um, both that name and the Skatari Mandragora. I don't remember anything else. I also like how Sanguinius turned up in a Land Raider. But if you take Sanguinius's model and put it on top of a Land Raider, you would realize there is no way on earth a Primate would fit in that. Um, you just sort of get it sit on the top, I guess. No, he was just very hunched, bro. He's very, very flexible. <laughs> He's just fold and packed. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Bro, they put him inside a Wally unit. <laughs> exactly. Um, and yeah, Galenius is very agitated. Um, I don't know if we'll ever see this guy again, I'll be honest with you. Um, but yes, he's not happy with the politics of it all. Eventually, they've kept Sanguinius out in the cold long enough, and they go in to a giant titan chamber. Did this do it for you, Varela? Just a little bit of a mechanical yeah. fix, just to keep you going. Yeah, yeah. All, all the them, them talking about. Oh, it kind of made me sad though. It reminded me of the whole Beta Garmin debacle because it's just a bunch of empty Titan base mm. and like people working on nothing essentially. It, it, they're just like, oh yeah, this this is like a massive facility. There's like hundreds of Titans, and then they just go like, oh yeah, ninety percent of the base are empty. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think they were hoping to bring a little bit more back. But think of how many traitor titans were they would have been able to field on terror if it weren't for Beta Garmin. Swings I mean, and roundabouts, isn't it? I mean, yeah, but I I, I don't know. I've, I do think more loyalist titans died than traitor ones because, you know, the traitor ones were deployed in less numbers. 
and then where all the um, loyalist ones were, uh, a, cra- a, a, a space station happened to crash on top of them, you know? <laughs> so I, I, th- I think maybe, you know, as Sanguinius beats himself up for it, I, I will beat Sanguinius up as well. They say that that chamber is just one is just ten percent of of the Titan the loyalist strength in the palace. Yeah, but you know, um, still. It could have been more, obviously. I think is this for Solaria Chamber though, isn't it? Because he speaks with the character from Titan Death, also written by Guy Haley, so he's tying together his books quite nicely here, right? Yeah, he talks to uh it's Mohana Vai, I think, or Ani uh, Mohana Vai or Ahani something. Vai, is that how it goes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he talks about how how uh, Mohana saw Horus fall, and I'm I'm like, she she just straight up says that he's dead. By the way, I <laughs> I don't get yeah, that. It's kind of that that classic sensation, mortal sensationalism, isn't it? Yeah, th- seeing like, what they want to see. Th- do you really believe that? Like, th- he's not. There's no way he's dead. Like, all you saw was him falling to one of his knees and then getting teleported up. Like, what's the chances that he's actually dead, bro? If and... he if he had died, then you'd be able to go to Ulanor and just watch the traitor forces tear themselves apart because they would yeah. have never made it off the planet without him. Yeah, it, it's pretty much you'd have the um, that part where they all chase the traitors out, but like instead of them chasing the traitors out, it's Dorn just looking at his auspexes as being like, he's gonna arrive any day, and then Gilliman just sweeps Horus like from behind. Well, not Horus, the traitor forces from behind. <laughs> you know exactly um yeah so so yeah dawn I've, um dawn's not convinced um but he does say that basically because horus wasn't there to lead the follow-up attacks at beta garments it's how sanguinius was able to get away yeah with anything at all, there's, there's a strong likelihood that he basically would have lost everything if it wasn't for if it wasn't for Horus, or a much higher amount of stuff at least. Yeah, exactly. Because all they lost was essentially just a rear guard and whatever pockets were still isolated, which is you know a significant force, but not catastrophic. It was it was just okay. Yeah. Then we have some interesting looks. I think for, for perhaps for the first time in a long time for our podcast, a look at basically some chaos ma- or sort of traitor militia, a very short chapter, but I really liked it. Um, talking about, um, oh, it's, a, it's actually, it's actually, is it a couple? It, it's sort of two different POVs, isn't it? There's the beast herd that have been locked up in a, in a ship. And that's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of, it reminds me a lot of sort of um, the bad guys in high fantasy stuff like Lord of Rings. They just sort of they they aim to recruit people who have been cast out, right? Who don't belong. Yeah. So in this case, they've called on the Beastmen. There's a Beastman called Asmodei, um, who it sort of briefly explains how he was sort of cast away 
as a child and um sort of beastmen is this sort of uh what's the word sort of almost like a, it's just like a an insult isn't it a slur that um is thrown at them but it just sort of sends them into a frenzy and basically sort of cultists are able to hype these beastmen up uh to a point that they they're sort of losing their humanity so there's that side of it they're sort of very much leaning towards the chaos side of things and then you have the Loman's Promise, which shows a a group of soldiers that, to be honest, I would argue, are not that far gone in the say in, in the whole chaosness side of things. Would you agree? Yeah, they you know apart from the one guy that is literally described as an idiot, um, they all seem to just be kind of regular soldiers. And we see uh, a guy called Hannes, like, etching a Noctad into the into his Laz rifle. Literally just so he doesn't get left out. <laughs> Which, yeah. you know, very relatable. <laughs> um, but yeah, they seem like a bunch of normal fellows, you know. Um, and that's unfortunate for them, because uh, they're not going to be normal for very much longer. <laughs> I don't even... Do they... I don't... I can't... I'll be honest, I don't think... I think this is it for them in this book where they basically, their ship, oh, I don't know, actually, they might pop back in, but they sort of, yeah, it's just sort of interesting. They can't really, they can't really believe it. They're not too far, they're not far enough gone yet to sort of just be like, woohoo, we're going in, boys. You know, live free or die trying sort of people. They're just sort of like, oh, yeah, we're on, we're on this side of the war because, to be honest, we didn't really have a choice. Um, and then they're just sort of like their their colonel comes on the horn and is like, "We're going in," and they're like, "Everyone's like, well, we've not got any landers. Um, we don't have anything. Don't have any drop ships." Not, and then their main their main all... lander just starts slowly moving towards Terra, and they're like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> not not to mention right that they thought the colonel was dead as well. Like they thought they had no leadership left, and suddenly this guy just comes up back on the horn like, "Oh no." Yeah. You know it's serious when the dead man starts singing. Exactly. Yeah. They've just sort of Imagine... been locked up and now they're about to get pile-drived onto a planet. But they, they, they do have a, a very interesting um, talk. Like, uh, when the uh, idiot character starts speaking to the like POV character, um, they, they have a talk about how, you know, the, that Horus is going to land the legions first. Uh-huh. Um, and, like, just, you know, tear through the first lines of defense and then get to uh, the walls and stuff. And we get a really, um, like, good comparison as to, like, the mentality. Now that I have it, like, in my head that Doramek is one of the, like, infiltrators, we, we get a really good comparison between, you know, high-level, um, I-, I guess, soldiers and low-level soldiers in which... Um, this guy thinks that the legions are going to go in first because, oh, you know, the angels of death, they, they can do whatever whatever they want, right? And the other guy who actually has the strategic acumen and just, like, overall picture to go, like, yeah, they're just going to send a bunch of father at us first. Um, yeah. And, and it's kind of an interesting comparison to make where Doramek is talking to Katsuhiro about the whole plan and he essentially gets everything right. And this dude gets everything wrong. <laughs> yeah. 
I kind of see where he's coming from though. You want to use the elite space marines to get in and then you deploy all your hordes yeah, to sweep but, everything up. But do you but really want to send your elite you units send into your macro into cannons, you know? Exactly. You gotta you gotta clog the guns, haven't you? Basically. Yeah. Um And the thing is it's like you've got the it's just an interesting comparison, isn't it? You've got the beastmen who are hyped up to do it, and then these borderline like these militia guys who basically don't really have a choice. Their yeah. ship is going to terror, whether they like it or not. And they're just entering kind of a panic, like everybody's like trying to mobilize, grab their stuff. And Which, uh, parallel to uh, the loyalists, to Katsuhiro at, at the start of the book, do you think? Yeah, I, I guess there's like a comparison to be made there as well. Yeah, where like Katsuhiro's one is like, there's a, a bit of chaos, but there's also a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of order there's like oh yeah you get the green chits you get the blue chits and then they kind of get separated in this one i guess it, it's just the chaos side of it mm-hmm. which is fitting you know that that's where the name comes from oh yeah um uh, or they just like scramble to get their guns and stuff and then all out of nowhere there's a bunk bed crushing three guys uh and it's yeah. just like stuff flying everywhere um, absolute anarchy yeah, so I guess there's multiple comparisons to be made in this scene with other scenes from the book. Um, and going back to the Beastmen, I think there's actually a really... Um, like the whole descent into inhumanity kind of thing. Have you ever seen that, that uh, collection of um, paintings from an, an artist that was diagnosed with dementia and like he was doing self-portraits as he went deeper and deeper into dementia? No, I can't say I have. So it's both very interesting and honestly frightening and sad. It's like actually scary because it's like as he does these self-portraits, uh, you can see kind of his descent into this sort of inhumanity as well, like this sort of uh, no sense of self kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I guess we see the same thing with as Medi here, but like five times as fat, five times, like a hundred yeah, times as fast, you know? one word trigger and he's off. Yeah, where he's just like, the whole time he's like trying to remember who he is. He's trying to, you know, stay, um, like he, it even says that he promised himself that he wouldn't lose that human part of himself, right? Mm. And then, you know, he doesn't really have that choice. He's like stripped of it and he's just seeing red. He's just feral now. Not yeah. saying that people with dementia end up feral, obviously, but I, I, I do think um, it's, you know, a very interesting look at not, not just this guy's condition, but like the human condition of some people, you know? Mm, um, I, I think the Beastmen in this book have also been, they've sort of been heavily played into by the the cultists who are rallying, you know, winding them up. Yeah. They they're not they're not getting any help. They're being manipulated into a cause. Yeah, they're also getting stemmed to hell. Like yeah. <laughs> it's just combat stems everywhere. Exactly. Um, speaking about a moment that made me sort of want to fist pump the air for the loyalists and um, really get me going. The next chapter is a it's quite a small chapter introducing. Uh, one of these the book's sort of main characters, uh, Aisha Davenport of the Bright Hawks and her Panthera fighter Blue Zephyr. Um, I just, I think as a British child, we're brought up on the fact that 
Uh, the Battle of Britain happened, and then we won the war. That's basically how it went. Um, <laughs> and this sort of plays a little bit into that, I feel like, that sort of moment um, where they're sort of called into action and just that sort of moment. It's like, oh, is it real? Is it real? And they say, the custodies are up. And that's like, oh, you know, it's on. You know, the, if the custodies, the custodies don't, because that's basically how they know it's not a training exercise. Because they're like, well, the Legio custodies don't do training exercises. They don't need to. Well, they do, but we don't see them because they're exactly. too good. <laughs> they don't do fighter drills, though. They're good enough not to have to worry about that. And, uh, and yeah, and, and then they sort of fly out of the Aegis almost. And just instantly a, las, a land strike just goes through their squadron and wipes out a couple of members, you know, basically just by them trying to fly to where they need to get to, which is a pretty accurate summarization of of the Siege of Terror and sort of how hopeless everything is. But you could be doing your best, you could be doing soldiering incredibly well, but at the end of the day, the Aegis might just fail in your sector and a land strike goes through and that's it, isn't it? You wouldn't know anything about it. Yeah, or even just a stray bullet. Like, one macro cannon aimed wrong, and you're just gone. Mm. <laughs> you and your entire squadron. Food for thought, brother. Uh, I'm sure you've... Have you played Mass Effect? Uh, not enough that it'll okay. work, probably, because I just didn't like have you, it. Have you ever heard the... Have you ever been... If you go to a space station in Mass Effect, you'll always hear um, sort of a marine sergeant telling the recruits about how projectiles never slow down in space. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen that, but yeah. I... Any day we could, there could have been some alien war two million years ago on the other side of a galaxy and they've shot some giant crazy space bullet A cyclonic a torpedo. Missed. <laughs> and it's just kept going. It could just hit us any second. And I hey could man. Be, I Jupiter's be, like, got us, bro. Jupiter's got her. Jupiter's got <laughs> Jupiter's got our back. It's like the gif of the refer of, of that referee catching all the balls that are heading straight towards the camera. <laughs> I got you, man. There, oh, there's man, actually to you. There's actually something. I'm not sure if it's a myth or not at this point because, like, um, there there's a whole thing where Jupiter, like they say that Jupiter acts as our shield against asteroids and stuff. But like mm. recently, I read um a paper slash article that said that it's actually the complete opposite. If Jupiter didn't exist, we wouldn't have nearly as many near misses. <laughs> <laughs> so like which one is it and i'm scared now jupiter should we giveth? destroy jupiter to give up and jupiter take away yeah pretty much like are you our shield or are you trying to kill us bro which one is it? yeah um so yeah the the imperial the loyalist uh aircraft takes to the sky and they see we have a cliffhanger at the end of that chapter where we see traitor air force descending down towards terror to wreak havoc um the cultists do actually come back here um the ship pile driving onto the surface of terror um and they sort of they don't deploy the 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 occupants of the ship just sort of spill out yeah they just kind of daze out those ones yeah um we do get I mean, a couple. I think, I think that is the end of them here, isn't it? For the war master, oh, the colonel had no inspiring words. He did not need them. For the war master, he said. For the war master, the Thurninian, the Thurnians responded. 
whistles blew and the Thurnians commenced their last charge. So they're gone. Yeah, it's over. <laughs> it is very, it is very much over for those guys. Um, Asmodei and the Beastmen, they are sort of somewhere between mortal and Astartes, aren't they? So they are able to. They're able to take a couple into, last shots, you know. Flying into and watching all of this, sorry, um, watching these beastmen burst through into the trench lines, and yeah, as you say, they can take a few rounds. Is the siege of terror's greatest bromance, Ralderon and Maximus Fane. Just bros um. being bros. <laughs> oh, to be honest, it's kind of it's uh, Ralderon's. Uh, affection is kind of un- is not reciprocated. Ralderon will go on and on about how good these guys are at building walls. They're like, oh my god, we just lost a big chunk of this wall and they've already built rebuilt it. These guys are so good. And Fane is like, I must do my mental calculations. <laughs> this they is just my job. Maximize <laughs> the fire output of my company. Um. I'm trying to c- come up with what word Raldron got. It's not like he didn't get friend zoned because he's not even there, is he? <laughs> uh, it's borderline ghosted. Yeah, kind of like. Yeah. You got acquaintance zoned. Acquaintance zoned. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, Raldron, but this is purely a professional relationship. <laughs> That's basically where we're at. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I like how Fane says this is insanity. I've never seen a battle like this. They fight without care for themselves. But like, Fane, have you fought orcs? Oh, true. <laughs> have you fought, like, and surely there's like other crazy alien species that fight like this? But I'm guessing it's because it's humans specifically, right? Like, he's not used to seeing yeah. humans do that. Even though we kind of see that in, like, Istvan as well. Yeah. They kind of just run at the start of, like, humans. Like, just regular humans. No gun. They just run. So, I, I don't know, man. Maybe maybe he's kind of tripping, you know? Yeah. Another make... blood hole that they need to fix. <laughs> and they note that no trait is yet. And Ralderon makes it clear that they are not going to act until traitors land and attack their walls. Um, we get we get really awesome scenes of dogfighting over the Imperial Palace. Um, the sort of uh, heftier, not as maneuverable Panthera fighters um, trying to do their best against um, the traitor air fleet. Wait, hold no, no, no. That's the wrong way around. The Pantheras are like the fastest, most maneuverable craft uh, out we'll there. We'll see, bud. We'll see. Well, supposedly they are. <laughs> That's what we'll it see. says in the book. I think the Legion of Astartes might have better aircraft. Uh-oh. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'm just using my foreknowledge here. Yeah, they're, having, they're doing pretty well at shooting. Oh, yeah, because um, Blue Zephyr chases down some big old bombers, don't they, that are trying to go for ground targets. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure Blue Zephyr's going to be fine. Um, Surely, right? <laughs> and then the final chapter that we cover today: the Beastman attack Katsuhiro. He tries his best, actually. He does all right, doesn't he? he I think he kills con- one of them, doesn't he? he? Kills one of them, and as a conscript, I think there he has already earned himself back. 
Yeah, he's got a medal for that one. Yep. His KD is higher than 99% of the conscript. Yeah, if he happens to make it to the end of this, and there's a planet left, and they decide to do medals about this battle. Yeah, he gets to enjoy the medal for the last five days that he's suffering from radiation poisoning. (laughs) It'll be Warhammer 40k by the time he is meant to get his medal, so he is not getting a medal. (laughs) I mean, he might. It's just going to be made out of dirt, and he's going to die two days later, so... Yeah. Yeah. It's all going to catch up with him. Poor Katsuhiro, man. But we do see that there are a couple, Domarek and uh, the female, uh, the woman, she... um, She's quite a fighter, isn't she? Yeah, she, like... Karate chops someone before drop kicking someone else, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. She has some like crazy moves, bro. So, what's yeah? I mean, that uh, it's it's starting to make a little bit more sense, um, right? About these people perhaps being the legionnaires from the start of the book. Well, oh, not legionnaires, <laughs> but yeah. I I mean, I don't. I don't know how I didn't see it before you said it. I, I don't know. It, it, it is so obvious looking back. Uh, oh my god! I actually didn't know either. I think you get... Because I think that's... Um, that's how caught up you get in like the conscription. I mean, right? Because you're introduced to Katsuhiro and you're literally glued to Katsuhiro as he's trying to navigate through this. Well, you know, where's he going? What's happening to him? That you... Uh, it's pretty clever, actually. I think. I think I got to give credit to Guy Haley where it's due. Um, when it comes to trickery, he basically immediately puts them back in uh, into their cover. Right, the very next chapter introduces Doramet. And yeah, and, uh, and I, I think it's very easy to say with hindsight. Oh yeah, obviously them. And I do. I'm teasing you about it, but you know, I didn't think I didn't catch it the first time. I didn't catch it the second time. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So I don't know about how, that's that. That's how man. the rhyme goes, rather. I'll let you do that with that. What you will. Yo, uh, isn't there a, a third stage? I don't get it. <laughs> um, fool me three times. I need to work on my observation skills. Damn, it's hold up. Shh, damn it, you're right. You're right. It is. That's how the rhyme goes. Damn. What happened to third time's the charm, bro? <laughs> but, um, so for this stage of a book ends with Ralderon walk, watching over avoiding strafing runs. Um, the enemy temporarily being repulsed and uh, the enemy begin to make their siege camps. And Fane actually compliments Ralderon. <coughs> My thanks, brother. Hmm? Maybe the bromance is alive after all. He's back. <laughs> We're so back. We're back. Yeah. What would their ship name be for this bromance? So. Rain. Mm. Rain. It's got to be rain, hasn't it? It can't be Falderon. Falderon is pretty good though. <laughs> Falderon or Rain. <laughs> Guys, 
comment below. There's no comment section. Um, Make your own comment section. Add us on Twitter. <laughs> brother, which one is it? Um, I'm, I'm thinking. There's got to be more, right? It's Maxim Thane, right? I don't know Ralderon's first name. Oh, no. I mean, it's Ralderon and Thane. So it has to be either Rain or Thalderon. Hmm. Thalderon is funnier, I think. So why not Thalderon? Thalderon does sound a lot like Thalbadon, though. Oh, true. Even better, you know? Oh, okay. I thought that might <laughs> swing, swing you to Rain. Um, okay, Thalderon it is. Um, then, um, he just sort of ends that chapter. I think he loses some. He loses some men. He's just the end. Is just like I require a new Nunciovox specialist and logistician immediately. Yeah, yeah. It's it's literally just that. It, it shows like just how. He, I don't you think know. even describes how he loses anyone. No, no, it's it's in the um, it's in the uh, strafing run because like they all die for cover, mm. and those two didn't die for cover enough, I guess. Yeah, but it's like, it doesn't like, like grab its way to describe it. I think that's the only mention of how he, that he's lost people, and it, as I feel like you were about to say that that's sort of summing up for siege. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Where like there's just casualties, and then you're just like, yeah, I I need someone to replace. These guys, oh, what happened? I, I don't know. They're dead, bro. <laughs> Just give me more. Yeah. Gonski. Yeah. They were there and then they weren't. And with that, that brings us up to chapter 14 and where we have concluded this book. And I'm very sorry, brother, because I have well and truly kept you from the best part of this book, which is yet to come. The second half is just takes for, takes takes this book and runs with it. And is definitely the better half by a country mile. Um, you're going to see some character interactions that you would never have even bet on in the second half of this book. Oh damn! So, uh, I, I, and and some stone cold moments, and people know what people know what's coming. People know what I'm talking about here. Um, so well, there goes part one. What are you hoping to see in part two? Uh, fights, lots of fights. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is there little, really anything else to hope for right now? Bruh. You know, m maybe some legionaries landing and finally yeah, some some Astartes, Bolter porn. You know, I think uh, I think the people listening who know what's in the second half of this book are very excited for your opinion. Ooh, that's okay. all I'm gonna say. Well, at least I'm finally free from both the shackles of the cupboard and the, the shackles of the, the shackles 14th of the chapter <laughs> yeah. yeah crack on mate enjoy the second half of this book um what's your rating at the moment just out of curiosity where are we putting this book as of right now hmm. i'm like i'm really enjoying it don't get me wrong but it's like it hasn't grabbed me yet you know mm -hmm. so i i go for like a seven and a half right okay. now there, there are really cool moments in there again don't get me wrong but there's uh, yeah. also a lot of boring <laughs> so I would, far. I would say it's a, a, an eight for me so far. I think that the um, descriptions of the sort of mortal experience on the front lines is just really good and really makes you quite anxious. So let's see what, what, can, what this book can be propelled to because this book, this book was in my top three until, until the, the latest book came out. So pretty impressive going um i know the siege isn't that big but 
I can't wait for you to read the second half of this book and for you to give us all your opinion on it shortly when we cover it. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Wait, thank wait, 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 wait. For dealing with our release schedule, um, being a little bit choppy, but hopefully we can get back on it soon. But just enjoy the episodes as they come. Varela, I know you're eager to do your spiel, so get it going. Wait, I need to check something. Hold up. Please. Okay. All right. I don't know where to check this. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, yes, uh, oh, here we go. Okay. Oh, I was going to stall for time. Okay, okay, I was going to okay. be very creative there. No, no, no. You I was about to say something it. incredibly insightful. Oh, do, do it. And it was go, really going to give this podcast, take it to the next level, I think. I just felt like a million pound idea on the tip of my tongue. But yeah, go ahead. I just, bro, go ahead. I just, I'm just trying. I'm just trying to think of it, and but I just know that if I can bring it to front of my mind, that it will change the whole game. It will change the whole game. What are we? What are we waiting for again? I don't. Well, you said you need to check something, so I was no. like doing a stall. No, yeah, yeah, but now, now, now I'm, now I'm interested. I yeah, want to hear it before I do the anything whole else. Bit no? is that I don't have anything. No, no, but I want, I want to. Hear. So you were meant to come in and be like, "Oh, I found it." Oh, this guy's useless. I can't take him anywhere. Uh, don't worry. Comedy is not uh, this podcast strong suit. I mean, it's not one a certain half of this podcast strong suit. That's all. Here I am. Here I am being. Okay, funny, come right? on, Captain Punchline. <laughs> what have you got to check and uh, say? Or say what you have to say. I didn't have to check anything, but I do have to say something. As per usual, thank you to all our patrons. Uh, we love you. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for giving us the resources to do this podcast, but, you know, uh, buying books, any kind of expenses like that. Um, and a special thank you to Sal's, as always, who is still our only Primark tier Patreon. Um, we love you and appreciate you as well, bro. Um, and yeah, I hope you guys have enjoyed the episode. Yeah, please remember that you can uh, support the podcast for as little as £1 a month over on Patreon, and you get access to Lil Horus Hour, uh, an extra sort of more off the cuff uh, podcast that we do every month exclusively for our patrons talking about all sorts of heresy madness it is goodbye from me it is goodbye from Thalderon and from Varela I'll see ya bye now <laughs>